Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast, episode 24, with me, your host, Des Latham. It's February 1900, and things have begun to change in South Africa. The British Army Corps, which so far has found itself flailing against an enemy steeped in the concept of mobility and also able to exploit the leaden-footed leadership of the imperial entitled upper class, has started to gain the upper hand. It's a 40,000-strong army that General Roberts has formed in the wake of numerous losses. Roberts himself has only just arrived in South Africa to replace General Buller. Roberts' centipede has also started to move at a more rapid pace into the interior of the country and so far has kept to the railway line to relieve Kimberley. By the 17th of February, Roberts' army had finally caught up to 4,000 Boers at Paardebach Drift on the Moda River as they tried to head eastwards to Bloemfontein, the Free State Republic capital. General Cronier, in charge of the Boers, had made a fatal error in deciding to dig in against the overwhelmingly large British force despite the warnings from his most talented subordinate, General Christian de Wett. But as we heard last week, the first attempts at trying to dislodge Cronier were made by the British using the same erroneous tactics in previous battles. This was frontal assaults of waves of infantry against entrenched soldiers armed with the latest magazine-loaded Morza rifles. Already 1,300 British are casualties versus a few hundred on the Boer side. Wave after wave of infantry unit charged directly into heavy rifle fire, which killed 24 British officers and close to 300 troops. Many, many more are wounded. Lord Roberts had been suffering from flu in the days before Paardebagdrif and sent his chief of staff, Lord Kitchener, to hurry Lord Kelly Kenny into this doomed assault. Roberts eventually arrived on the 19th of February. After the terrible carnage of the 18th, Kitchener seemed unperturbed by the loss of life on his own side. He viewed the foot soldier as the pawn of empire. They were expendable in order to achieve what he saw was a swift victory by pure dint of British valour, charging towards an enemy with bayonets glinting, tally-ho, and all of that. The Boers may have been surrounded and being shelled constantly, but they were not giving up just yet. When darkness descended on the first day of battle, the Boers were holding a line that overlooked their own camp, courtesy of an inspired attack by General Christian de Wett. He now believed he should vacate that copy with his 300 men and around 150 reinforcements. Roberts, recovering from the flu and arriving at Paardenberg, immediately met with the officers and agreed with Kitchener. More attacks were required. However, they were alone. The entire British officer corps present disagreed with the commanding officer and his bloodthirsty chief of staff. Give Roberts his due, he then did what Kitchener had failed to do and properly reconnoitred the area, before arbitrarily enforcing his decision to attack. He wanted more facts. Following briefings and viewing Boer defences, Roberts changed his mind, which must have surprised the gung-ho Kitchener. Roberts went further. He met General Kelly Kenny and suggested a technical withdrawal to Jakobstal on the railway line to allow over 800 wounded men to be sent to Cape Town more quickly. This was now the 20th of February. There was still a week of misery for both sides. However, Kelly Kenny convinced Roberts to remain in place for now. Roberts then reverted to shelling the camp, which the British then proceeded to do over the next week. The camp was shelled constantly, and the effect was disastrous for Boer morale. 
They may have been deep in their foxholes and a honeycomb of defensive trenches along the Mura River bank, but they had now withstood an ordeal. These Boers had started moving on the 15th of February, and after three days were effectively encircled and facing dozens of British guns firing thousands of artillery shells. Now it was more than a week of ground-shaking explosions, day and night. Pardebach proved to be a graveyard for the Boer horses. Most were killed in the shelling, the carcasses swelling in the heat, and the stink was seeping into everything, even their clothes. Most of the Boer wagons were burnt out. Some had exploded as they carried ammunition. Everywhere was destruction. Furthermore, while some Boer women and children escaped, there were a number within Cronier's fetid camp. At least 50 women, including General Cronier's own wife, had followed their men into the lager and were experiencing the same menace from those British guns. Cronier's people had been drinking water contaminated by carcasses and bodies, their food smelled of lidite, and it had now been raining for two days, turning the trenches into a foretaste of the First World War mud of Flanders. They were also running low of food, and others were ill with dysentery. Still, de Vette knew there was an option for the Boers. He had brought fresh horses with him, and when he arrived after the start of this battle, he wanted to use these to get the cornered Boers out of their predicament. While de Vette was sending Cronier messages clearly stating that he could provide for a few hundred Boers to escape, the general was obstinate and refused to entertain retreat. However, around a hundred did take up the offer, a paltry few. As we know, this civilian army allowed individual soldiers to make decisions whether to stay and fight, so these one hundred were saved. But the vast majority were now stuck in the depths of misery. Cronier then asked for a truce on the 26th of February in order to pick up the dead and the wounded. Roberts refused. So Cronier sent a note back saying, If you are so uncharitable as to refuse me a truce as requested, then you may do as you please. I shall not surrender alive. Therefore, bombard as you please. However, by the morning of 27th of February, even General Cronier had had enough. Meanwhile, the vet had sent a man known as Dani Teron to urge Cronier to abandon his lager and to fight his way out and meet de Vett's men at two secret locations where they had then flee the English. Things were moving on the British side too. Kelly Kenny, the Irish nationalist, yet British general, warned Lord Roberts that any decision to pull back to Jakobsdal would lead to General Cronier escaping, which would be a blunder and a propaganda disaster. Finally, though, at 10 o'clock on the 27th of February, Cronier surrendered. 4,019 Boer soldiers were captured, 150 of whom were wounded. 50 women were amongst the Boer soldiers. Roberts' casualties were close to 1,300 most of which took place in the first hours of the battle, all those days ago, on the 18th of February. This was to be a major blow against the Boers of the Free State, which basically disappeared as a useful conventional force. Roberts met Cronier as he climbed off his horse under a white flag and greeted him courteously. I am glad to see you. You have made a gallant defence, sir said the British general to the tired but imposing General Cronier. The Boers were marched away. 
just to understand the significance of this moment, we need to hear from Christian de Vette, who was very specific about what a disaster this was for the Boers in his book published in 1902. And he said, I must repeat here what I've said before, that it is evident to me that Cronier's obstinacy in maintaining his position must be ascribed to the fact that it was too much to ask to abandon the lager. His view was that he must stand or fall with it, nor did he consider the certain consequences of his capture. He never realized that it would be the cause of the death of many burghers and of indescribable panic throughout not only all the lagers on the felt, but even those of Colesberg, Storenberg, and Ladysmith. Well, just a note here, I think, about the oddities of war in Africa, and how it resonated and echoed the oddities of war in Europe. During the Roman invasion of Britain, for example, the Celts often fought their battles within sight of their families who travelled with them. Here in South Africa, 14,000 kilometres away, the Boers were doing the same. It was also well known that African armies fought in full view of their womenfolk. If you read Credo Mutwa's great work, Indaba, My Children, it's ostensibly a telling of oral history. And in that telling, African armies often went to war while their families followed. When Shaka fought the British, women were often following and would help clear away the dead and collect loot, food and other goods. War in Africa is a family affair. I'd like to mention a few individuals from this Padbach battle. Of course, one is Christian de Vett, who was officially known a Boer Fecht General or Combat General. He was 45 and looked like a country lawyer. Unlike his comrades, he kept his beard neatly clipped. Unlike Delaray, who was a huge man, Christian de Vette was short and stocky. He wore a gold watch chain across his tweed waistcoat, carried a leather briefcase full of military plans. He also carried field glasses, which he now used to spot where the British were. If you'd bumped into him a hundred years later, he would have looked like a British ornithologist, except for one trait. All who knew De Vette commented on his eyes. They were brown, but very bright. They stared through you. Many said he had a hunter's eyes, and all those who met him were immediately struck by his speed of thought. It was these eyes that peered through his field glasses at Paderbach Drift. It was also these eyes, connected to his quick mind, that convinced him of the need to become a guerrilla soldier. This was to become the crux of the Boer strategy in a short while, and de Vette was already an expert. There's another to mention in this terrible engagement, the Farkenes, or scouts, led by an enigmatic man called Donny Taron. He had a force of highly trained Boers who were selected for a number of reasons. They knew the country like the back of their hands, and even the international mercenaries had a knack of understanding how to use the lay of the land. All could read Spur and track humans and animals over stony ground for days. And by the way, many in this crack force were not even Boers. They were Dutch, French, German, Russian, Irish, Bulgarian, Turkish, Greek, and there were even Algerians in this unit. They were a kind of Boer foreign legion. Tehran had started what had become known as the Special Force. There is a direct link between this man and advanced training by small specialised forces, such as the Green Berets, the British Desert Rats during the Second World War, which used South Africans heavily, or the Navy Seals, as well as the British SAS, which referred to themselves as commandos. 
the very word identifying the Boer soldier. Taran had been born in the Cape and practiced as a lawyer in Kimberley. Maybe there's something about being a lawyer and a soldier. He became famous for physically assaulting the editor of the Star newspaper for its Eightlander sentiments and was then convicted of criminal assault. He was also part of the commando unit that captured Jameson and his raiders in 1896. And when the Anglo-Boer War began in October 1899, he was put in charge of a unit known as the Bicycle Dispatch Riders. This was a world first, and these cyclists served with distinction in Natal under General Joubert and Butter. They were chosen for the most difficult and dangerous tasks, like all special forces. Then, in early 1900, he joined De Wet's commando in the Free State, and at one point literally crawled eight kilometers in 24 hours to get one of the messages to Cronier asking him to withdraw. Tehran mastered the art of appearing at British lines and in perfect English, suggesting that small units deviate from a plan, then he'd disappear. The British, of course, then walked into an ambush. So Dani Tehran has passed into Afrikaans folklore in his extraordinary exploits, first on a bicycle and then his horse, along with his 80 hand-picked special force members from all over the world. And one of the surprises was Canada. It commemorated the Battle of Paderberg for many years. There's a little-known book called Painting the Map Red by Carmen Miller, which explains in great detail what the Canadians' role was in the Anglo-Boer War. Much of the credit for Cronier's surrender fell to the Canadians, who for a time were used as the British Corps infantry, particularly in these phases of the Free State War. In recognition of their services, Commander Colville, with Lord Robert's specific permission, granted them the traditional, but in this case dubious, honour of claiming the scant spoils of the enemy's filthy lager. Roberts said the Canadians were instrumental in the capture of Cronier and said that Canadian means brave, dashing, courageous. There was an outburst of colonial love. Even Queen Victoria sent the Royal Canadian Regiment congratulations. When news of the victory at Paderbach was announced in the British Houses of Parliament, the members gave the regiment a standing ovation. And in another instant, another legend had been reborn. That of the superhuman Canadian foot soldier, this was not to bode well for their survival rate in the First World War, when their superhuman qualities came under extreme duress. Imperialists, though, at this point, hailed the event as an eloquent rebuke to Little Englandism, the dawn of a new colonial era of colonial cooperation. A Canadian politician remarked, Canadians did not rejoice because Cronier was defeated, but because their sons had become men in the eyes of the world. Often it takes a war for people to take you seriously. For 50 years and more from the state, survivors of the Paderbach battle, the veterans, for half a century, would gather in Canada to celebrate, with items on the banquet menu, including beef a la trek oxen, or gravy a la cronier, uh, and a muddy sprayed sauce, or you could have clear de vet soup. The skill and steadfastness of G and H companies in the final hours of the battle were lauded, their twinkling bayonets so close to the Boer lines putting the fear of a final assault into the minds of their opponents, and was one of the reasons why Cronier surrendered. It was a bedraggled unit, like all of Roberts's 30,000 at this battle, but victory has an odd way of revitalizing an exhausted man. 
And across the country in Natal, General Buller was up early on Tuesday, 27th of February, when he received a message by Field Telegraph. Roberts had achieved his breakthrough. Now it was Buller's turn. The barrel-chested British commander had had a terrible time of it in Natal and had been roundly defeated in many separate and bloody battles. So next week, our attention shifts back to the east coast of South Africa and its hinterland where Buller, followed by Winston Churchill, are busy trying to rescue 13,000 British troops trapped in Ladysmith. Will he get it right this time? He's been trying to push through the thin line of Boers since October 1899, but failed. And his vastly superior force, though, had begun to whittle away at the Boer resolve, and the news of Cronier's surrender had troubled. So join me then, and don't forget to check out our Facebook page, Anglo-Boer War Podcast, or the website, abwarpodcast.com. And if you have any comments or input, please feel free to send me a note. Direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Goodbye.